Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 272 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the current state of science fiction podcasting and exploring what science fiction podcasters can learn from public radio. And I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got Rose Eveleth. Her writing has appeared in BBC Future, Motherboard, and Best American Science Writing, and her radio background includes stints at WNYC and WNYU. She's a former editor of the Story Collider podcast, and she also produced the first season of the 30 for 30 podcast for ESPN. She also hosts Flash Forward, a podcast about the future. So Rose, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 200 and what? That's so many episodes. <laughs> 272. 272. Wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. And also joining us today is Eric Malinsky. He worked for over a decade for PRI's Studio 360, and his work has also appeared on Morning Edition, All Things Considered, Marketplace, and the New Yorker Radio Hour. He also hosts Imaginary Worlds, a bi-weekly podcast about science fiction and other fantasy genres from Slate's Panoply Network. So, Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty blown away by the amount of episodes you've done as well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my my episodes are easier to produce than you guys' episodes are, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> um, but the first thing I wanted to ask you, Eric, is actually I was just listening to an interview with you, and you were talking about when you were working in public radio or when working in public radio, how you have been pitching fantasy and science fiction-related topics. And they've done a couple of them, but they haven't wanted to do as many of them as you were interested in. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could just talk about that a little bit. Sure. I mean, I think it was probably talking about working on Studio 360, which, I mean, uh, at WNYC, uh, or it was, actually, now it's a part of Panoply. But, I mean, it, there could not be a show that would be, you know, more open to sci-fi fantasy stuff than than, a sh than Studio 360. But even then, I was just saying how I, I felt kind of limited by, you know, how much they're willing to, to go into and... You know, as they the often used to remind me, too, that the people listening to the show very often would not be very, very well versed in what I was talking about. And I sort of had to I felt like I often had to keep justifying why we were talking about this on public radio. Um, and I always found with other public radio shows or like NPR when they recover this kind of stuff, you know, they absolutely had to mention how much money these movies were making or how many viewers this TV show just to justify why they were talking about it. And I remember that frustrated me a lot. Well, right, because my, my parents are big uh, public radio listeners. They pretty much always have it on when they're home. And so I've, I've listened to a lot of it kind of in the background, but I never got into it so much because of this, because I was always so interested in science fiction and video games and stuff. And I felt like there wasn't much of that on public radio, um, or if there was, it wasn't from the perspective of a hardcore fan or somebody who was really passionate about it or something. Um, yeah, and I also, just to interrupt for a second, yeah, I also felt like, Public radio rarely talked about the issues within science fiction and fantasy and uh, the kind of just really interesting in-depth conversations that the fans were having about this kind of stuff. Um, you know, that, that, that there always seemed to be sort of a barrier to it because they imagine, you know, if they're all talking about Star Trek, everybody must be in their parents' basement with Spock ears or something. <laughs> like that's kind of the <laughs> stereotype that I think stopped them from, from sometimes taking this stuff as seriously as they take the other arts and culture that they cover so well in public radio. Yeah, but Eric, I have to. Do you think that's changed? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, this is, I'm doing that rude thing where like I start asking questions of the guest. <laughs> 
But I'm curious, no, like, because Harry Potter is so popular, right? Like Harry Potter, and now we've got, you know, there are all these big blockbuster movies that are, you know, seem like maybe infiltrating the mainstream culture, and they're making new Star Trek movies. I mean, do you feel like that has changed at all in your ten year stint? At did it, like did that needle move at all? I gotta say, I don't think it did much. I mean, I, I don't, I did not see a lot of people other than myself, frankly. And, and very often I had to keep adding in these justifications I didn't want to have to do, um, to just, just, uh, take it as, you know, yeah, to take it as seriously as the fans did. I mean, I guess it's, I mean, one thing that I think has changed, for example, is, uh, you know, we did this, uh, hour long episode of American Icons about Superman. I think back in 2006. And when that first went on, I mean, we got so much flack from listeners. Like, they could not believe we spent an hour seriously talking about Superman. And I don't think, you know, now, 11 years later, I mean, they replayed that episode so many times. I don't think they've gotten any complaints in a while about it. Um, you know, the idea that this, how dare you spend an hour talking about Superman on public radio? I, how can my money be going towards this? So I think that's a way that the needle has definitely moved a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, if there are any public radio people listening to this, I mean, you have at least one person here who would like to hear more of that kind of stuff on public radio. I recognize that I'm not exactly a representative sample of the general population, but I, I feel like there have to be a lot of a lot of people like me out there who would want to hear this stuff on public radio. It does yeah. feel like public radio in general is almost never, no matter what you're a fan fan of, like they're never really aimed at f the super fans of anything, right? Because they are trying to be so general and trying to hit like every possible market audience. Um, mm -hmm. And that is like a frustrating thing about mass market anything, right? Where, you know, I'm a sports fan too. And like the way that NPR covers sports is honestly laughable because they just assume that you don't know anything. Like they're like, what is, what is sports ball? You know, like they do that for almost everything. Um, and I feel like actually Actually, sports is an interesting analogy because it is sort of, I think, inherently taken unseriously uh, in NPR world in the same way that I think fantasy and sci-fi gets lumped into like young adult in a lot of those cases where it's like, oh, this is for kids or, oh, this is for like stupid jocks, you know? And I think that you're getting that changing a little bit, but I feel like a lot of public radio in general, it's just not going to ever be geared towards the super fan of anything. That said, like, you don't have to justify why you're talking about, you know, uh, the 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 latest literary novel, even though like how many people are really reading, you know, the nine hundred page literary novel that just won the award, you know, so it is skewed. But I think that it's probably the case for a lot of topics. Well, I mean, Rose, I mentioned in your bio that you um you had sort of internships and jobs and stuff at WNYC and WNYU. Was there ever any discussion of fantasy and science fiction that you observed? Yeah, I mean, at WNYU, um, it, it's very kind of you to put that in there. That is the NYU student radio station. <laughs> so uh, it's not, I mean, it's great. For, it's like a super great learning place. You know, I ran a show um, in which I could do whatever I wanted, but like seven people probably listened to it, um, which is totally fine when you're learning. You kind of do want to like be able to do stuff on a very, very small stage. I think that's actually something that is tough in podcast land or sort of in a lot of media now. It's, you know, there's not a lot of small proving grounds like that where you can kind of try weird things and do weird things and then, you know, not have an entire network or an entire station, you know, thrown behind you. You know, now it feels like if you have a podcast with a big network, your first episode is going to go out on every other podcast on that network and you'd have no, there's no margin for error. You can't have 10 episodes that are kind of shitty. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, great. Yeah, so this isn't this isn't public radio. You can curse as much as you want. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, and so, I mean, I think that that's a hard thing, right? Like getting to work on this science and tech show at WNYU, which like literally nobody really listened to, was great because I made you know fifty episodes of a show, and I really like kind of got my reps in. Or Radiolab, you know, spent the first couple of years of its existence where like nobody listened to it. So, I mean, I I think that's great being at WNYU, but WNYU doesn't have rules in the way that like an NPR station would. Right. Like I really could do whatever I wanted, um, aside from curse, actually. We did have rules about that. <laughs> um, but uh, at WNYC, I was an intern at Radiolab. And, you know, they're also sort of uh, almost an exception to the the NPR rule in that, like, whatever Radiolab kind of wants to do, it's sort of allowed to. <laughs> um, they're kind of allowed to, like, get weird. So one of the things I actually worked on when I was there was a show, a short about this court case in which um, – this these people were arguing about tariffs and taxes on superhero figurines and whether they are considered toys or dolls, which like seems really weird and obscure, but it sort of got wrapped into this whole conversation because these were X-Men figurines largely. And a doll has to be human and a toy doesn't have to be human, which like is entirely the thing of X-Men, right? Where you have these like mutants and like, are they human? Are they Hmm. not? And so we did this whole short, you know, really like getting using this obscure court case and fight over taxes and tariffs to sort of make this weird parallel to X-Men and the, that universe. And it was really interesting and weird. But that's like the kind of thing you can do when you're at Radio Lab that you probably can't do at a lot of other places because the fans will go with you kind of anywhere. Um, and you don't have to do quite as much. I think the big thing you have to do when you work for like a, a different NPR show or a different show in general is sort of say, OK, well, why are people listening to this? Why do people care? And you do have to answer that at Radio Lab. But you also have a little bit of built in like people will kind of go with you where, wherever you decide to take them. And the payoff has to be really good. But you don't have to do with a lot of the same explanation up top about like, oh, well, X-Men is a franchise that makes lots of money. You know, like mm-hmm. all of that stuff you have to do on a short for, you know. A more mass market NPR show like Morning Edition or even, you know, Studio 360, which is sort of aimed at an arts crowd. Um, and so it's a little like, you know, it, it was formative and it was great, um, but it's also a little bit weird and an exception to the rule in a lot of ways um, because you were allowed to like we could do a, a super weird but like delightful little short like that. And nobody was like, you know, we're not getting the Superman comments. People were like, why would you spend 15 <laughs> minutes on this? This is stupid. People were like, oh, this is a charming little thing, you know? Well, I agree with what you're saying about how podcasting is more forgiving. I really appreciate that I've been able to do 272 episodes of the show that are all kind of shitty and it's okay. So <laughs> I'm still, I'm still, you, I'm, get, I'm getting say, there. You need to say that in a self-deprecating British accent. <laughs> 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 272 absolutely awful episodes. Thank you for bearing with me. Yeah, but I can't Dreadful. do a British accent. I'm so I'm so hopeless yeah. at this. Um, but so, Eric, so tell us about – so, I mean, in the interview I was listening to, you were saying, yeah, that you, that you wanted to do to go more in-depth on the fantasy and science fiction stuff than you could on, on the radio. And so that's why you decided to get into podcasting. So say a little bit more about like what that what that was like, just getting your podcast off the ground. Uh, it's funny. I mean, it was it was totally terrifying at first, and then um, it was uh, then incredibly disappointing when I realized no one was listening. And why why did I think <laughs> that putting my podcast out there that the entire world would be like, "Oh my god, <laughs> here it finally is!" Finally, Eric has a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, well, well, tell, <laughs> tell Blair us, the trumpets. <laughs> tell us what was the concept and stuff. Like, how did it like be, even the stuff sure. before you actually released your first episode? Yeah, sure. I mean. Um, I mean, it took me, I, I knew I wanted a podcast for a while, but it took me a while to figure out what it would be about. And I mean, I used to work in, I mean, I, 
a whole part of my background, which I talk about, my backstory, which I talk about a lot of my um, podcasts, is that I used to work in animation and uh, in LA, and I made this really weird career shift. And so there was this, but there's this whole very geeky side of me um, that, you know, I used to joke that in, in, in the world of animation, I was like the sophisticated uh, NPR listener guy who was just not, not at all. Um, I don't know, maybe sophisticated is a little bit too kind, but certainly <laughs> I felt, I felt like Fraser Crane walking around the animation studio. And then I, I, and then I, wa- I walk into WNYC and I suddenly feel like Kevin Smith or just like, where on earth this guy come from? And so it, it's it's amazing that it took so long for me to realize that this was the passion. You know, I kept thinking, well, what is my, you know, in terms of what I talk about, you know, what's my what's my broccoli and spinach versus what's my cake and ice cream? And and I realized this was it. And I, I you know, once I realized that uh, it was pretty simple. I mean, I knew that I loved putting together my stories for public radio. And the thing that used to frustrate me the most very often is the uh the amount of time that you can get with a public radio piece. I mean, every episode, everything I turn in was usually about 14, 15 minutes and they'd say, that's great. Now let's make this six or seven. And it just felt like I was chopping off limbs to get to that point. Um, and, and then even still, when you got it to seven, they'd say, ah, this other, this other segment's too long. Can you make it 545? <laughs> um, and it just, it would be kind of heartbreaking. And so to, to, you know, and that was the first thing I remember noticing with Roman Mars with 99% Visible, which was one of the first big podcasts, was that it sounded like public radio, but he could make it as long as he wanted, which was so liberating for a public radio producer that I could make a piece 15 minutes or I could make it 25 minutes, however long I felt it should be, which now is not only is it so normal, but one of the biggest often one of the most common questions I get is why isn't my podcast longer? And I always say, like, you understand, this to me feels luxurious <laughs> like to spend 25 minutes on a single piece. Um, so I knew I just wanted to do a supersized version of my show. Uh, and that part was really easy. I think the hardest part beyond that is not having an editor uh, because, you know, so often you, you, you have an editor who works with you, not often in the beginning, the editor may approve the story, but then the editor doesn't come back around until you have um, a script and some tape and then you get on the phone with them and they're, and, and you're like, reading the script and then putting the phone up to the speaker. And so through their, through their phone, they should, which it, it should sound to them like a very raw version of a public radio story. And then they give you lots of notes and sometimes you can go through five to even 10 drafts like that. And so not having an editor was, it was really strange as well. And something that took a long time to get used to. Um, and so what I would often do is I, and I still do this, is I try to get my episodes done as early as possible so I can just kind of ruminate on them. And I keep just talking about my inner editor that I'm trying to get in touch with. Um, but eventually I realized my wife also could serve as a great, you know, second pair of years since uh, she did go to journalism school, even though she went into TV um, instead of radio. So she she also, to some extent, serves as an editor as well. But But those are some of the big shifts I had to make. Where did the name come from? Uh, you know, it was such a long, I had such a long list of ideas. I was going to call it suspension of disbelief for a long time. Um, people thought it was too clunky. And, um, my brother who loves, um, he loves career, uh, giving people career advice, just thought this whole project of mine was fascinating. And so he was, um, he was just asking me to ramble. He said, he's like, just ramble. Just tell me, just describe this podcast to me. And I just started talking about these imaginary worlds. And he just was like, stop. That's your title, <laughs> imaginary worlds. And so I was that, that felt like a, uh, a big accomplishment that day. 
So do you see your mandate as anything related to fantasy and science fiction or like where where do you draw the line of stuff you wouldn't cover on, on your podcast? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm actually going to do two episodes uh, coming up about concept albums. Um, and some these musicians who are writing a sci-fi fantasy concept album wrote and asked if I'd be interested in you know doing something about that. And I was like, oh my god, that's great! And I and I had to decide then where do I draw the line? And it definitely has to have some fantastical element to it. It doesn't necessarily have to be fantasy, but it could be. It just needs to be fantastical. Uh, and I hope in the future to even to broaden that even more so um but as long but there needs to be something it can't because i looked at some other artists who are doing concept albums and if there was nothing fantastical in it even the slightest bit of you know i mean there's even a you know a, um, a genre called slipstream where it's everything's as close to reality as possible with one little thing you know askew and i could cover slipstream you know literature someday i could cover you know um you know, musicals. Uh, but uh, like I said, it's, it's got to have a surreal uh, an element, a moment where you're taking reality and you're twisting it to some degree and a moment where you need to really suspend your disbelief. And that's the thing that I'm always so fascinated by. And then even though I gave up suspension of disbelief as the title of my podcast, I always say at the beginning, this is a show about imaginary worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. Yeah. Well, so how about Rose? Uh, talk about what was the Genesis of your podcast? Flash forward. Yeah, so um, I uh, I've always sort of been in podcasty land, and I made a couple shows, and then um, a friend of mine was the editor at Gizmodo, um, and she asked if I had any podcast ideas, and I was like, oh, boy, do I! Um, and so I pitched her, I think, four or five different ideas, and we both agreed that this was the best one. Um, and the premise of Flash Forward is that um, every episode starts with a possible future, so um, a little radio drama, kind of like a War of the World style, like five to 10 minute radio drama that puts you into a future. And then the second part of the show is me talking to experts about what that future might really be like, how we would get there, sort of what the repercussions would be. And it really ranges from, um, you know, the super unlikely things that are just kind of absurd, but fun to think about, you know, like what would happen if space pirates dragged a second moon to Earth and the Earth had two moons, um, which like not going to happen. And then we've done things that are really um super realistic and terrifying like you know what happens when antibiotics stop working and like that's probably the scariest episode i think we've ever done um and and also things that aren't necessarily science uh specific so we did an episode i say we as if there's like more than one person working <laughs> on the show it just makes me feel like there's like a you know it's like oh yes we do these things um but so there was there's an episode about what would ha what would it really be like or what would it really take for california to secede from the united states or you know what would it take for everyone in the u.s for the u.s to have a direct democracy where we were all actually voting on everything. So we do sort of a combination of, you know, political, cultural. We did one about what would it be like in a future where gender was just as important to us as hair color. It's like a thing people have, but like we don't really care that much about it. Um, so some of them are science, some of them are tech. And I sort of pitched this idea to her um, and she was like, yes, let's do it. So I did a pilot season for Gizmodo and then I kind of went independent and have been doing it since. Um, and it's just sort of a weird little format, but it, it allows me to kind of touch on the two things that I really love, which are the journalism side of things and the reporting and then also the like building of these imaginary worlds. And imaginary worlds is a way better title than suspension of disbelief. I'm really glad you went with imaginary <laughs> worlds. Thank um, you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I talk a lot about these imaginary worlds and sort of world building for the first half of, of these each episode because I really want to like drop people into these worlds and make them e sort of figure out what's going on and then kind of talk about, you know, the science and tech and politics 
politics and sort of what the reality or sort of unreality of those worlds might be. I mean, could you say a little bit more about why did you feel it was important to have those audio drama segments at the beginning of each show? I just thought it would make it more interesting and also sounded really fun. I mean, I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of the idea of the show came out of I used to cover and I still do cover a lot of tech and science and particularly in the futurism space. And there's a really great I mean, sci-fi is so powerful in getting us to imagine things and imagine futures. And obviously, you know, as both Eric and I have talked about a lot on our both of our shows, uh, a lot of sci-fi is really telling us a lot about today and sort of like how we feel about our current situations and sort of it's not usually about the future, really. Um, and I just felt like I was seeing all these headlines and I was seeing all of this stuff in the futurism space. And I felt like it was really hard for anybody who it was hard for me as a reporter who is an expert in this stuff to figure out like what the hell was going on. You know, you see people who are like, AI is going to destroy us. AI is fine and harmless. Like who like how are you supposed to parse those things? And to me, um, it's much more interesting to be faced with decisions sort of in a fictional sense and then sort of get the reporting to back it up than to just be like, here's what you need to know. Um, because I think there's so much of that out there. I mean, I'm not Vox. I'm not. There's all these different websites and shows and you know, both radio and podcasts and also just online that can explain things really quickly to you. And if you just want an explainer, that's like not like listening to a podcast is not the most efficient way to consume that information. It's probably not necessarily the best way to consume that information. Um, I would argue that the best podcasts are like things that kind of step slightly aside from the explainer and kind of give you a little bit of another thing to think about. Um, and, and yet so, that doesn't stop millions of people from trying to make those or thousands of people from trying to make those kinds of podcasts. I know it's amazing. It's amazing. But I think that's why like you know, like to get like meta talking about podcasts, but I think that's why the daily actually works really well is it's not a, it's not really a news bulletin. Like if you want the news, you can turn on NPR and like get your news in the morning or whatever. You can just read something. You, can, you get your push alerts, whatever. It does this thing where it kind of like you've probably heard about this. Here's like a way to think about it or here's like a voice you might not have heard, you know, and that's kind of the, the way I think podcasts are really like situated to be really interesting in in sort of helping people sort of take their understanding and awareness and thinking to the next level. And so for Flash Forward, my the idea was to really try to put people into positions in this audio drama to have to face these decisions themselves and then kind of back up from there. Because I think so often, and especially in futurism, it can feel really abstract um, and it can feel like, oh, well, like if these nine things happen, maybe we'll get to this 10th thing that you might have to think about. And, you know, that's just like I even kind of my eyes glaze over on some of those stories. But if you can put those people into that 10th position into that part where they're like, okay, well, now you have to decide if you are willing to drop your kid off at a school that is only staffed by robots. You know what I mean? Like, then we can start to have an interesting conversation from there by just sort of dropping people into that universe. I mean, it's the same reason why sci-fi is so interesting. And the reason that probably we're all interested in sci-fi is it like kind of puts you into these worlds and makes you think like, what would I do in that situation? Like, what, what are the considerations here? And I think that being able to sort of skip ahead to those things using the sort of trope of this audio dramas is the thing that was interesting to me. Well, like one of the episodes of your show I really enjoyed was it's called Unpawful. And <laughs> the premise is that in the future, animal rights have extended far enough that it's considered uh, wrong for people to keep them as pets, that this is violating the animal's freedom. And you're actually able to find someone today who's advocating for that position. How do you go about finding people like those people who are sort of advocating these sort of unusual um, causes. Yeah. I mean, to me, the the fun thing about combining these two things is finding those people. Um, and I also try to, as much as possible, find people who have perspectives that you don't normally hear, like on NPR, say. Um, and so, you know, sometimes that's just sort of reaching out. I, you know, I have some background in like 
I used to work in a research lab that got a lot of hate mail from animal rights activists, so I know where to find them. <laughs> um, and just so stick through I your just, mail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all the all the death threats that I've gotten, like who seems the least scary <laughs> to me? Um, and so I so I just sort of got in touch. Actually, this the woman Alice is I think the woman's name who I talked to, and and she was actually quite nice and you know laid out her argument. Um, but I do like to give those sorts of people some airspace because you know they are the ones who are kind of pushing for these futures. I mean, we've, I've talked to people who, you know, want to implant all sorts of technology into their bodies and already have. And, you know, those are people who are sort of outside the quote unquote norm or people who don't really think necessarily about these things the way that we do. Or, um, for the episode about California seceding, I asked, uh, a person who's a, a uh, First Nations, um, scholar and sort of someone who knows about Native American rights, like what happens to all the Native American reservations in California if it secedes, right? And that's a question that I wasn't seeing anybody answer. So I try to find sources who can give that little like kind of left turn answer, like the thing that you're like, okay, you've heard all about this topic, but here's the thing you maybe didn't think of, or here's the voice you didn't hear in these conversations. Um, and so finding, honestly, finding people to talk has been relatively easy. I think partially that's, I have a background in reporting, like I am a reporter probably first and foremost. Um, and so that's the fun part to me is like going and finding these people and trying to get them to talk to me and also trying to present myself as a person who's not setting them up for some kind of you know, trick. I think that especially folks like Alice who do these animal rights things, they're so often sort of the butt of jokes that I'm like not interested in making work like that. And so to sort of convince them that, no, no, I actually genuinely want to hear your argument. I might not agree with it, but I am interested in hearing you explain without sort of making you a joke. Do a lot of people tell you no, that they don't want to appear on the show? No, it's amazing. Um, most people say yes. There are some scientists who don't want to do future stuff, which I totally understand. Some of them have had their work misrepresented in the past. Some of them just say that they don't think, you know, they don't want to be part of something that's like talking about fictitious futures. Um, this is I've had a couple of climate change researchers sort of say that they've been burned a little bit in the past by sort of talking about the future. And I try to make it very clear in my initial when I reach out to people that I'm not asking them, particularly to scientists, I'm not asking them to predict the future. I'm not asking them to endorse anything. I'm not asking them to even say like, hey, this is going to happen. I'm just asking them to show up as an expert to be like, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. Um, And I think I have a pretty good track record with other scientists. So I can also say, hey, here are the other sort of like big name people who appeared on the show and have like liked it, you know. Um, but I do try to be very careful with that because I understand as a scientist, it's always really risky when you start talking about hypotheticals, right? Because your job is not to talk about hypotheticals. Your job is to kind of talk about what you what you know and what you can test and what you can measure. And so I do try to be very careful and very clear and sort of separate the scientists from the like zany futury stuff as much as possible because it's not it's a lose-lose situation if I make them look like they're pre- predicting something that they're not and then they get mad and then other scientists don't want to talk to me. So I'm pretty careful and about that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And Eric, I mean, I just want to bring up uh, one of your one of the episodes of Imaginary Worlds I really enjoyed was this one. It's called The Book of Dune, where you talk about the Islamic influences on Frank Herbert's Dune, which is a really I love that one. I've never heard anyone bring that up before. So I was really fascinated to, to see that. How did you come up with that idea? Thanks. Well, it's some, you know, I think my approach is a little somewhat of roses in the sense that I I and, and I and for me, uh, my, my where it came from for me was with Studio 360. We would often do that again, going to that American Icon series. It's you, th- you know, what does everybody think they know about this? And in the sense of it would just be really boring for me to regurgitate that. And, and, and I also try to think of what is what is the angle people haven't thought of? What what have I not seen out there very much? Um, and so you know, with Dune, people kept asking 
and asking and asking <laughs> whether I would do Dune, and I had never read Dune, which I started to become really embarrassed about. Um, except I'd, you know, seen parts of the movie, the terrible David Lynch movie, uh, from the 80s, which he had very little control over. Um, but so then, yeah, when I started reading it, um, and again, I was still looking for my angle and I was doing so many Google searches and there was so much stuff about the environment with Dune. And the other problem I saw was that so many people had already covered, uh, that angle of, you know, like the still suits that the, um, Fremen tribes wear, uh, in Dune. There were like scientists in California that were trying to create it. And I listened to the whole public radio story about it. And there's always a sense of if, if I can't think of how I would do this any differently, I just, I just put it on the shelf, my sort of proverbial shelf. And then I was reading Dune and the word Jihad jumped out at me and I just was kind of startled. And, and I saw it again and again and I just thought, whoa, I have never heard anybody talk about this. Um, and then I go into, you know, I go into a deep dive, uh, Google search and, um, found people who have strong opinions about it. Uh, and then, and, and short on that, I just find people that have been really helpful in the past. Um, like the Center for Science of Imagination at the University of Arizona. Those guys are great. Uh, so many times when I've been stumped for guests, I go to them and just say, who do you know? Because <laughs> they have this vast worldwide network of people that they know who are interested in writing about science fiction and talking about science fiction. Um, so that's how that came together. So, so the, like those experts um, for that episode, how long did you interview each of them for? Uh, I typically, my interviews are typically 40 to 50 minutes, uh, and, or sometimes they go up to an hour, sometimes they're less, sometimes it's pretty quick. Um, and then, yeah, and then I, I, I just kind of whittle it down to find the, the tape I like best from there. And you, you must be whittling it down to like four minutes per person or something out of that hour, right? Or, or how much of that do you end up using? Uh, probably more than that. I'd say maybe... Well, I was going to say 10 minutes, but that's probably a bit much. I think in the end, it's probably about eight minutes of tape, <laughs> but it doesn't feel that way. That's the important thing. Um, I mean, I feel like it's one thing you get used to doing in public radio is they'll give you a, an interview that, you know, the host um, did and the, the interview is about 40 minutes and they'll just say, we have a 12 minute slot. Could you edit this? And I always thought that was like, it's the weirdest kind of trick that you can pull in public radio to make it look like somebody sat down with the host had a 12-minute conversation that still <laughs> felt very satisfying and got up and said, all right, see ya. And, you know, their coffee that was percolating is now ready. You know, like it was that quick a uh, conversation to make it still feel full. Um, and that's just something that, you know, you just do over and over and over again to those muscles just become very kind of – those mental muscles become very refined in how to do that. Now, see, in this other interview with you, um, you said that you were able to use the WNYC studio kind of after hours to work on your show. Is that still the case? Or you still do you still have? Oh no, no. That when I didn't have to do that anymore when I um, when I joined Panoply, and also when I got picked up by Panoply, I left WNYC uh, and because um, I was able to get advertising money. Um, and I, I still do part time work, you know, for a lot of work now for the New Yorker Radio Hour. But I know I'm not I'm not regularly there anymore. But uh, Panoply's got a studio uh, in Brooklyn, and I live in Brooklyn, so it's great. And so you, when you get the people on the phone, do you have special, like, great-sounding phones or anything? Or is it just like calling them on a normal phone? 
I wish. No, I use, <laughs> I mean, I use a, I use a lot of Skype tape. Um, and then we have something called a tape sync that we do a lot in public radio where you talk to somebody on the phone and then you find off a message board a reporter that lives near that person, goes to their house, sets up a microphone, you record yourself, they record them, they send you the tape. Um, usually it's good, sometimes it's not. It's a big surprise <laughs> that there was a fan on the background and you're like, why didn't the reporter do something about that? Uh, and you're just stuck with that tape. But that's, you know, that's usually what I do. Unless uh, there are certain studios there's a studio in la that i've used a lot um that's pretty great so if I, a lot of the interviews in la i'll just have them go in that studio or obviously if they're new york based i can just do it in person yeah i mean rose when i took a class with you um at union docs which is how we know each other and you said that you would just kind of record stuff in your closet with like this little cheap mic is that is that still your setup I have, um, I am actually in my closet right now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do. I have, um, in my apartment, I have a, uh, what should be a laundry room, but that does not have a laundry machine in it. Um, and I have hung up curtains and stuff. I have a, I have a shotgun mic. Um, I, when I started out, I was using an extremely cheap Roland, um, just like little handheld mic to do it. Um, but now I, I use a, a Zoom, which is sort of a recorder that I have a, shotgun mic, you know, all told, you know, it's not that much in terms of setup cost. Um, I know people use the little blue, the Yeti blue mics and stuff like that. I find that, um, and I'd be curious, Eric, if you think the same thing. I find that like public radio people can be a little bit too precious about sound quality sometimes. <laughs> um, I think that like most listeners, as long as you can, you know, follow and hear and it's not, you know, really hard to listen to, will listen to tape that is either phone tape or Skype tape. Or I often will ask the um, interviewee to record themselves on their smartphones and I'll just talk to them on Skype. And I usually record it back up as well. Um and I think that, you know, very rarely have I ever gotten complaints from people being like, the sound is bad. Um, I think that there is this thing in public radio where, like, they want the most pristine sound, which makes sense if you have a big budget and you have studios and you can do that. Um, but I also sometimes feel like it's more important to have a good show. <laughs> and sometimes I think there's a little bit of, like, fetishizing ni- nice microphones. Um, I don't know if Eric agrees or not. But No, um, I agree. I agree 100 percent. In fact, it's funny because, I mean, that got so nailed into me, you know, if um – God, I remember once we were doing an interview with somebody, um, and they're at the BBC, but not in London. It was like, you know, in Edinburgh, and the engineer listened to the quality of the mics through other interviews that the BBC Edinburgh had done and be like, not good enough for us. And yeah. so the biggest shock for me in my podcast is, ha- is how nobody has ever said that no Skype tape sounded crappy. <laughs> like nobody, nobody cares. cares. Nobody was, cares. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, like, I'm sure that, like, you know, this is also biased, right? The people who really hate it maybe don't send us emails or whatever. But um, I just feel like when I'm listening, you know, like, if somebody has a really good interview and it's Skype tape, I it doesn't bother me. Like, I don't care. <laughs> like, it just, I'm interested. I can understand what they're saying. It's not, you know, I mean, I have listened to interviews and I've done interviews where the tape is just, like, unusable. There's, like, crazy noise in the background or, like, I, you know, there are moments where you're like, oh, I really, like, cannot understand what this person is saying. But, like, if you can understand what they're saying and just happens to be a slightly, like, less high quality line i'm just like not gonna lose sleep over that well i've recorded 272 episodes in my closet so (laughs) i'm kind of with you on that yeah closets listen closets underneath blankets like you know you you make it work Hmm. you know it's funny because i've tried that so many times and i feel like i listen and i sound like i'm in a hostage video i feel like under the blanket (laughs) yeah like i feel like i need the presentational thing of having the mic and talking to it. I feel like, I don't know, something about my energy level, I can never get it at the level I want it to be unless I'm sitting in a room like a, you know, old-fashioned, you know, mic sitting there at a table kind of thing. 
That's funny. I did have it in it. Like I had to do an episode from a hotel room and I like left it to the last minute because I thought I was, it was a whole thing. And so I, but it, I had to record at like four o'clock in the morning before anybody else had woken up. So I'm under the blanket and I'm also trying not to be too loud. And I got all these emails from people being like, are you okay? <laughs> it's like, really? I sounded, because so, I was like trying to be really quiet. And they're like, why are you, why are you talking like that? <laughs> it was just not, it was not great. Well, but this issue of sort of standards of radio versus podcasting is kind of occupying my mind a lot recently, because as I was explaining to you guys a little bit in the email I sent you, I feel like the, you know, sort of when I got into podcasting, it was all amateurs and science fiction podcasts were all done by writers or fans or you know, people with no radio experience or anything. And, and I have no radio experience. Um, but I feel like ever since Serial came out that there's been this whole, like, influx of really highly produced high quality podcasts and it's not just like talk you know not like talk shows like this it's stuff like you guys do where there's you know background music and um you know narration and uh interviews intercut and it's all really um you know really highly produced and really professional sounding and i just wonder uh you know sort of what is the future for podcasts like mine where it's just like i'm in my closet and i just talk to people and uh, you know, I don't have any background music or anything like that. Um, so I don't know, Rose, what do you, as, as a fellow closet dweller here, do you fear at all that we're, uh, that we're going to be uh, run out of town by these, uh, uh, you know, more highly produced podcasts? I or don't. Or like more, more highly resourced podcasts? I mean, resources are always a thing, right? It's, it, it, it would be better to have more money, right? <laughs> to be able to do the show. Um, it would be better to have a nicer microphone, maybe. Um, I mean, it would really be better to be able to like hire someone to help, you know, and like Eric, like I don't have an editor, right? So I, there's no one who's telling me like, hey, Rose, maybe don't do a segment on whether Beyonce is a clone. Maybe that's a bad idea. And I'm, <laughs> was, like, I'm doing it anyway, really you know? So, so like, you know, there's just no one, you know, and I like, I'm also like Eric having to like hone my editor brain. So I think that would be a place I would spend money. But I mean, I think that I think you you made you said something that said highly produced and high quality as if those are synonyms. And I actually don't think that they necessarily are. I have heard some very highly produced podcasts that are not good. Um, and I have heard some like very low production level podcasts that people love. I mean, The Read, right? The Read is not a highly produced sort of like there's no background music or whatever. And they are doing gangbusters and it's a great show. Um, I think that there are shows that are highly produced that obviously Serial, obviously S-Town, obviously those both come out of This American Life, which is a public radio show. They have you have Gimlet. But I mean, even Gimlet has had you know, trouble sustaining a couple of their shows. Um, I truly think and I don't know this is like a really annoying thing to say, but I do think that like quality is the most important in terms of like, do you have a show that is really well thought out, that is executed really well? And by that, I don't necessarily mean, you know, sounds perfect and has room tone and has, you know, fancy music or whatever. But I just mean that like you are delivering exactly what your listeners want. Um, I think that that ultimately wins. I mean, The Ringer has all these podcasts and they are pretty basic in terms of their production value, but people love them because they love the personalities. They love the people behind them. I think that, yes, in some sense, like as soon as podcasting becomes like big business and as soon as like all of these big players enter the space, it does make it harder, right? Because they have the megaphone and we have, you know, like a chalkboard on the sidewalk, right? <laughs> um, and like, you know, we're competing with people that have 
funding and that can put their shows. I mean, I saw an ad for a podcast on TV and I was like, what? Like, <laughs> I, I can't put an ad on TV. You know, like it sometimes does feel like you're just you're like, you know, the David to their Goliath. Right. But I also think that you see enough shows that are doing really well. I mean, Call Your Girlfriend is produced and has a producer, but like they're just talking to each other on Skype. You know, like it's not. I don't think there's no like background music. There's no fancy stuff. I think, and they have a huge audience that's super loyal that comes to live shows and they sell stuff out. I mean, there are all these shows that, you know, I think some of them have the benefit of having started before the big influx of these sort of bigger players. And I think now starting a show is a little bit harder. Um, but at the same time, there are so many podcasts out there and, you know, there are so many people who are like looking for the next thing and looking for the podcast that they want and looking for their sort of person who's going to like bring them into the podcast space that I don't I don't think that it's sort of like, oh, you know what? Hang up your jacket. You're done. Like, there's no way you can compete. I think it's just a question of, you know, how do you make sure you're reaching the audiences you want to reach and how do you make sure that you're not you're not getting over preoccupied with competing with a Gimlet or a This American Life and you're making sure that you're doing what you do really well. And I think that I fall into that trap too a lot where I'm like, oh, well, they're doing this and maybe I should like do this differently because they're whatever. But that's not what my show is. You know, like my show is a certain thing and the people who like it really like it. Um, this is not to say that resources wouldn't be great and don't mean that you have a better chance of succeeding. I don't want to like say that, oh, if you just have a good product, people will find it because that's like just not true. Um, but I do think that like, there are all these shows that aren't, you know, highly produced sort of This American Life spinoffs or serial or don't take eight months to make and that are doing super well. So I don't think that it's like, you know, the end of days for podcasts like ours. Well, Eric, I was looking at the reviews for your podcast and a lot of people mentioned that they heard you on 99% Invisible and that's how they found Imaginary Worlds. Mm -hmm. How do you get on 99% Invisible? <laughs> um, it's funny because I was talking about. I want to know too. Tell, tell me, Eric. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> you do. You do an episode of. 99%. I did. A, I did a couple episodes of Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. Um, you know, and I knew Roman a little bit by going to Third Coast, which is the big um, public radio. Although now it's way more than public radio festival that happens in Chicago every year. Um, so. You know, that helped, um, certainly. And I didn't have a lot of attraction in my podcast until then. And basically he, um, he'd been listening. I didn't know he'd been listening. And then he just emailed me once and just said, Hey, it's Thanksgiving. Um, you know, we don't want to put in a, uh, a new episode. We all want to take a break this week. So we're just going to put on one of yours. Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> sure. And so, yeah. Well, like, Roman, well, if you're you listening, want. uh, shoot me an email. All right. Yeah, yeah really. me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I was like, yeah, definitely. And it was, it wasn't even an episode I would have even thought of pitching them because I'd actually been, you know, he's continuing to pitch them stories. Um, and so, but I was like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. It was an episode about, uh, costume design of superhero movies and TV shows and why they're looking better than they used to. And yeah, it was amazing. My, my listenership just like quadrupled overnight because of that. And, uh, it's funny because because Roman's fans are like really intense. I mean, the people that have been listening, I, I couldn't get any of them to respond to me. I would be like, you know, I feel like some of my call outs would be like, if anyone's listening, I'm on I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. <laughs> and then these guys were so like, I mean, they immediately start giving me all this feedback. But, you know, his quote unquote, beautiful nerds, they're uh, they're very it was funny that they suddenly became my audience and they're. Yeah, they're, they're just very, um, dedicated to, to what they're listening to and talking about it. And, um, yeah, that, that definitely helped get a leg up. And, and I, 
you know, I, I got to say it's it, it is a really tough thing to get people to, to notice your show uh, without that happening. I mean, I'm still jealous of the people that managed to get on to Radiolab, the people that get on to This American Life. I mean, they've had huge bumps when that happens. Um, and I, I don't see my myself ever, you know, getting on those shows anytime uh, in the near future. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a tough thing, and and it's amazing how many to- how many people rely on on certain podcasters that they consider to be tastemakers, uh, and how important that is. Because I feel like I I have been trying everything since then, and have been trying had was trying everything before that and since then, but but nothing you know could match just just the you know a seal of approval from from Roman. I had a similar thing. I, I worked with Planet Money on an episode and it was just like, oh, now people are listening to my show. You know, it was just like immediately people who in a similar way, people who listen to Planet Money are like super fans of Planet Money. Um, and uh, they, you know, they contacted me and were like, we need future future like vignettes for the show. Like, can you do it in like four days? And I was like, oh, <laughs> Jesus. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, it was worth the like sleepless nights because it totally made a huge change in the audience numbers. Yeah, I actually want to go back to something that Rose said earlier, which I, which I just want to add to about, you know, in terms of the professional coming in, I think the biggest factor, and I totally agree with everything she was saying, but I think another huge factor is how much time do you have to dedicate to your podcast? Um, yes. And I think also if you're a professional, you've put in the years already to get to the point where you can crank out things fairly quickly, which, you know, you, you're, you've already done your steep learning curve. Um, and so I think that I think that makes a huge difference too in terms of um, how you know how good a podcast could be, and 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 I agree with her too. It's like production values do not equal good, um, but I do think the amount of time you can you can put into it if you've got the money to do it, if you can get advertising, definitely makes a big difference. Well, because I've been doing this podcast since 2010, and I've definitely noticed a big change. Where I used to have a lot of people write reviews and say like, I'm not really into science fiction, but I. You know, there were like 10 podcasts back then. So I started listening to this one and now I really like it. And now I'm a big science fiction fan. I've listened to every episode and I've read all the books. And oh, that that's almost, great. Yeah, but but that, that that doesn't seem to ever happen anymore. As I was saying, since Serial, I feel like it's just, you know, there's just so much more. There's so many more options for people to listen to. And my podcast has been pushed so far down the iTunes charts that uh, that kind of just like random person finding it doesn't happen so much anymore. Yeah, I mean, this is a thing that podcast people talk about all the time, which is like the discovery problem, right? Like this is like a constant thorn in everyone's side, which is like, how do people find podcasts? And the answer seems to be from other podcasts, basically, because, you know, iTunes, that interface, you know, the Apple podcast interface is like not super intuitive. It doesn't really help you find things. There isn't the same like Amazon. If you like this, you might also like this, you know. So people just find out about podcasts from from other people that they like and they know, so like their friends, and then also from hearing it on other podcasts. So like that's sort of why you know, 99PI pushed a lot of people to Eric and you know Planet Money pushed a lot of people to me is that like – I mean even me. Like when I'm – I think of myself as a podcast consumer um, and when I go to find a new podcast, it's usually because I've heard about it on another show because I'm like listening to that show and I like those hosts and I think they're smart and I think they have good taste. And then they say, hey, you know, we actually really like this other show. And then I go down that show, you know, and like that's sort of how people find stuff. And it's tough, right? Because like there are all of these really great shows that don't have those relationships or maybe don't have the numbers to make a trade like that sort of a win-win for people. And there are great shows that have like 
not great audiences because they don't have or they're having trouble like finding new people because, you know, Apple doesn't really care that much <laughs> um, about their interface and because they're like they're not on these other shows. And it's hard, right? It's really hard to get like these little shows when you're first starting out. If you're not with a network and you're not connected to anybody and you're not, you know, just like any other industry, you know, podcasting is kind of about who you know in some situations and like the fact that you can like go to third coast and meet the people and you know then they know you and then they'll email you and whatever it is um i feel like the discovery problem as cliche as that has become in sort of like talking about podcasts is kind of a huge actual issue that a lot of people are trying to solve right now and i don't know how like i don't know I don't have the answer. Otherwise, I'd have a lot more money and not be sitting in my closet right now. Well, it seems to me though that this is <laughs> that this is maybe um, another advantage to doing a more produced show that it might get run on ninety nine percent invisible planet money or something. Whereas, like if I do a hour and forty seven minute long interview with James Patrick Kelly, even if it's the best hour and forty seven minute long interview with James Patrick Kelly you could ever imagine, that's not going to run on Planet Money. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, but you that's got episode, true. You got shows. Sorry, I was just saying we also have shows like Long Form that are doing something very similar. Yeah, I love Long Form. Yeah, I mean that's the thing I would say. Like if we're get if we're gonna move into advice time, um, I would say like yeah, reach out to like shows that you really like and shows that you think are doing a similar thing to you, and like say like hey, either you know I've got this great interview with this person, you know, would you be interested in a collaboration of some kind, or like hey, you know, do you want to swap? ads like you know eric and i did this where i was like hey you know do you want to advertise for flash forward on your show and i'll advertise for you know imaginary worlds on my show and like we did that and i think i mean i've heard people be like oh i heard about your show on imaginary worlds you know and like that's cool um or like i've done that with gastropod where it's like this great podcast about food and like they hear that you know they the people found them through me and vice versa and so you know if there are shows that you think are like doing things similar to you and sort of like you know you think would make sense to, you know, trade ads or something like that, you know, you can reach out and be like, hey, you know, what would that be like? Or I've had podcasts buy ads on my show if they have a little bit of ad money and they're like numbers don't make quite sense for us to trade. They'll just like spend a tiny bit of money and we give them a discount because they're another podcast or whatever. Um, and so there are ways you can kind of like get yourself in front of those people and figure out how to kind of like leverage those relationships. Hmm. And that, that that sounds like really good ideas. Maybe I will talk to you guys more about that um, some other time. I, I don't want to. I don't want this um, this episode to get too inside baseball. But um, yeah, let's get let's talk more about um, your shows because you do what we do on Geeks Guide to the Galaxy too is interview science fiction authors. And so I'm curious, maybe Eric, how do you decide whether to interview a science fiction author versus an expert or academic or something like that? God, you know, it's funny. It's, it's really depends on the subject matter. It's, it's, it's very intuitive in terms of whether, you know, again, it comes to that, the angle that I'm taking. Uh, and if I feel that, uh, do I want to hear an academic or do I want to hear a creative person discussing this right now or a fan? I mean, I'm actually surprised how often I've included people who are just almost like professional fans, um, of something just to get that perspective. Um, so yeah, it really depends. Um, I mean, I think the biggest weakness of my show to some extent is because I'm a one man band, you know, when it comes to like the science fiction authors I interview, they have to be people I'm interested in. I mean, sometimes, so many times my listeners have said, I love this book. You absolutely should read it and you should have this author on and I read it and I'm like, eh. and I just, <laughs> and I stop at a certain point. I'm like, sorry, this person's never going to be on my show unless I have a staff and I have, you know, people who can come on and interview this person instead of me because it's just not going to happen. So, so it's very, it's very intuitive and very kind of idiosyncratic in that sense. Which uh, which authors would you say you were most excited to talk to? 
Uh, God, I mean, the person I geeked out about the most was Scott Snyder, who writes Batman comics. I, in fact, I even re-aired that episode recently, or a longer version of it. Um, I was very excited to talk to Kim Stanley Robinson recently when uh, for his new book, uh, New York 2140, because uh, I've been a fan of his for a while, um, and he's just so smart. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things where I've, I've heard a lot of interviews with him, and, you know, to be there in the room with him... Uh, in fact, we had tried really hard to, to, he was in Davis, California, and we're trying to work out on his schedule to, uh, the other great thing is that any professor or anyone near a university, very often they have, um, studios that they'll let you use for free. Um, but I was trying to get him through the University of Davis, uh, but he ended up coming to New York. And so I actually got to sit in a room with him and talk with him. And, uh, I was just, yeah, I was just kind of giddy afterwards. No, I mean, he's, I, I interviewed him. I mean, it was over the phone. I never got to meet him, but uh, he's, he's really, really smart and interesting. I would love to talk to him again sometime about both uh, New York 2140 and then also Aurora, which I'm really, really interested in. Um, but how about Rose? Uh, who will we'll talk about what kind of science fiction authors that you were excited to talk to? Um, I got to talk to Ted Chang, which was awesome. Um, and he's like the nicest, weirdest man. Um, in like, I the love best his way. work. Yeah, and like I was so nervous because like because I don't I actually don't get nervous generally for interviews anymore. I feel like I've put in my ten thousand hours of interviews and like I just you know I'm like used to it now. But he was one of the people where I was like I I really want him to think I'm smart, you know, like I really want him <laughs> to think I'm good. Um, and he's like the nicest person and was so like so smart and so interesting and he clearly just thinks through things in like a super like generous and insightful and incisive way. Um. And he was great. Um, I also got to talk to Lois McMaster Bujold, who writes like really amazing feminist science fiction that I'm very into. Um, uh, I have talked to Kim Stanley Robinson as well about the climate change and, and future stuff. Um, he went on a whole like five minute um, like love note, audio love note for dirigibles, which I was really into. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, like, you know, he's he's great. I think, you know, similar to Eric, like, you know, I only really talk to people that I'm interested in. And I actually uh, next week I get to interview N.K. Jemison, who I'm super excited to talk to. Um, I'm in the middle of the last book of her trilogy, which I'm um kind of obsessed with um so yeah so i, I just you know i'm not like, in the same way like i'm not going to interview somebody whose book i didn't like because like i probably didn't finish reading it um and also because you know the show mixes sci-fi and journalism like you know i only interview sci-fi people when i think it makes the most sense um so i mean there is sci-fi about a lot of the episodes that i've done that i don't end up talking to writers for um but yeah i mean the uh those are, I think, the main people who I've, I mean, I feel bad. Like, I'm like, they're all my favorite. Everyone's great. Um, but yeah, those are the people who come to mind. <laughs> it's funny, actually, speaking of N.K. Jemison, because I interviewed her about the first book in that series, the um, mm -hmm. the fifth season when it came out. And later on, she uh, they did a um, fiction issue of Wired magazine, and they invited her to submit a piece for that. And um, and so they, I talked to the people who had done that issue, and they were saying that, oh, wow, you uh you interviewed N.K. Jemison way back before she really blew up and got huge. And I was like, oh, like in my world, she was already, you know, yeah, she, was already, yeah. she had already blown up and been huge, uh, you know, when I interviewed it's her. Funny, it's funny. I, 
I get the same thing with like, especially because I interview a lot of like people who've written books in the 80s, um, like Mary Doria, Mary Doria Russell and like other people like that and like who haven't necessarily written something big since then. And I'll get notes from people being like, I had never heard of this person. And I like read all this stuff and I was like, she's won like five Hugo Awards. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like she's like not, she's not like an unknown person, but like, yeah, like they're not like in the current sort of like world of, of sci-fi. So um, it is nice to like, I'm sure you get this a lot more than I do, David, like people discovering books based on like your stuff. Right. And it's really hard for me to gauge just what percentage of our listeners are familiar with the authors. Like I, I really wonder, you know, just how many people just listen to the, uh, listen to these long, long interviews and have no idea who the person is going into it. I did a whole episode about Octavia Butler, and my biggest concern was people would be like, oh, really? Discovering Octavia Butler in 2016? Welcome to the party. Yeah. And I could not believe how many people were like, I have never heard of Octavia Butler. It's amazing. Butler. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much for introducing me to her. I, I was shocked at how many people wrote me and told me they'd never heard of her. It is amazing. I feel like post-election, there's been a lot of like, have you heard of this person named Octavia Butler? And I'm like, what? Like, you know, like yes. <laughs> you know, like, they're like, oh, my God, parable of the sour. Like, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah guys. Hi. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, also, too, I think Ava DuVernay is going to be uh, uh, adapting yeah. um, the oh, I forget the name of the book. The, the oh, it has this title seed in it. But anyway, she's adapting one of her books. Yeah, I'm excited about that. It's going to be really good. Well, that's interesting, Eric, that you mentioned feedback. Do you have any other feedback from listeners that you get that really stands out in your mind? Uh, I'm honestly stunned at how many times people tell me they binge the whole show. Um, it's just incredible. I mean, I've done like over, well over 70 episodes and I'm always so curious what they were doing. Uh, they were taking a road <laughs> trip. They were, I get a lot of painters too, will sometimes say like I was, you know, and I was the same way in animation. I mean, I remember nothing I hated more than having to do perspective drawings. And sometimes I'd have to spend three <laughs> days doing that. And I'd listen to an entire like Charles Dickens audiobook <laughs> because that's all there was to listen to back then. Um, but that, that, the, the binging really kind of amazes me. And, and, uh, I mean, it happens often enough now that I'm not amazed anymore by it, but but it still on some level uh, kind of amazes me that the dedication people have towards listening to podcasts as if, you know, you're like, I just binged on The Wire or I just binged on Buffy. Right. I mean, I just had somebody sign up for Patreon just, just an hour or so ago who said in their message that they've been listening since 2010. You know, I mean, the stuff like that just blows my mind. And these are, you know, hour long uh, episodes that are weekly or bi-weekly. So that's a lot of stuff to listen to. Yeah. The other thing I think is amazing to me is the global nature of podcasting because at Studio 360, we were a national show, but most of the feedback we got tend to be from the Northeast. Uh, and of course, when I did a lot of stuff for WNYC, it was all very, you know, very local. Uh, and it would be more like my cousin would say, I was in the car and I heard your voice. But I mean, to get, <laughs> you know, comments from, you know, Ireland and, you know, Australia, it's just, uh, that, that, that I never get tired of being amazed by that, even though it's, you know, duh, of course it's global. Yeah. Uh, how about Rose? What kind of feedback do you get? People hate my voice. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm right there <laughs> with you. Really, you really get that? <laughs> oh yeah, all the time, all the time. Um, yeah, but I mean, like, I feel like if you're like a a woman on the radio, like you just get that all the time, which is you yeah. get used to it. Um, uh, no, the the feedback that I like the best, um, I got one recently that I like maybe teared up at, where someone was like, 
your show is the reason that I like left my job and went back to grad school to like study future studies. And I was like, what? (laughs) You know, like stuff like that. But I think the main thing that I really like to hear is people say like, you know, I had never thought about that thing that way. Right. Like that's the thing that I like the best. Um, You know, because that is kind of the point of the show is to like give people like mental models, basically. So when they encounter, you know, two giant tech bros fighting about whether AI is going to destroy us, they like know the questions to be asking or sort of know how to think about it Um, and to have people be like, oh, now I get it. Or like, oh, now I like understand how to like think about this or even just like what questions to be asking. That's the kind of feedback that I like the best. Um, I mean, I also like, I love hearing people, I mean, same thing with like the binging thing. People will be like, I listen to all of the episodes and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of time. (laughs) But I'm like, I appreciate it. Obviously, you know, I will take every listen, but like, yeah, people will be like, you know, I, I, you know, I listen to all of them. The the funny thing that I get is, um, so the show does range from like super absurd things that just like are never going to happen. You know, like everyone wakes up and they're face blind. And like, you know, how do we then like adapt our society to people who can't recognize each other's faces um, to the ones that are super serious and like very sort of grounded in reality. And I have found that listeners are split basically 50-50 um, where if they have an opinion, some of them like, you know, a lot of people like both. But some people there's like a group of people who like hate the silly ones and are just like. I don't care about that. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, knock it off. And then there are people who hate the serious ones. because They're like, I'm listening to this for entertainment. Like, I don't want to be sad and scared, you know? Um, mm. So, like, it is interesting to hear from those people. Um, and, I mean, I'm always going to just do both. Like, I, you know, I'm not going to really change what I'm doing based on that. But, like, there are definitely those two camps. I think the vast majority of people like that we do both. Um, but there are definitely two camps of people who are like, knock it off with your like nonsense silly things and then on the flip side being like let's let's not do antibiotic resistance that's like a little bit too real <laughs> that's interesting i have a you know we have a similar thing over here in imaginary worlds where we <laughs> sorry i just heard you say we again. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes uh, me and the no, team because <laughs> i uh i do have a similar thing where i tend to have my um what my uh, my old editor at Studio 360 used to call my think pieces where i have some <laughs> some big thing that i'm trying to explore like uh, how was the internet predicted through science fiction over the last 100 years? And I have a lot of people where you don't get to know them that much or that well because it's all about just advancing different parts of this argument. And then sometimes I'll just do an interview with, you know, uh, what, you know, like Lisa Hannawalt, the artist who's, I love you know, that one. uh, is a designer of, you know, Bojack Horseman. And it's just it. It's just a whole episode of me interviewing her. And some people really love that. They really love the creative process part. And the other people who really are like, I listen to podcasts to learn things. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, I don't care about some interview show. Uh, it's interesting. You, you, it's almost like different parts of their brain, you know, lights up and they get really, really excited. And then they, those, you know, the people that get so excited about the big thinky pieces just utterly disappear. If, <laughs> you know, when I have these yeah. kind of creative process kind of one on one interviews and vice versa but that is one nice thing right about like running your own show and having a podcast is that like you know at studio 360 you have segments right and you have Mm -hmm. like the a b c you know you've got your like blocks you've got what you like first we do this then we do this and you have like your aha moments and you have your like little segments that all have their own thing and they each like have to do a thing and you you know whereas on the podcast like if you want to do an interview you do an interview and if you want to do the big idea thing you do the big idea thing and like you can just do both and it doesn't really matter. You know, like no one is like checking and no one is making you say like, well, you know, last week we did that. So we can't do it again this week. And, you know, you obviously, you know, probably balance them out. So you're not doing like nine interviews in a row or whatever. But like it is you have the freedom to kind of do both of those things. Whereas at a public radio show, you might not have that freedom. 
Yeah, and I've done a couple of radio dramas, which has been incredibly divisive as well. <laughs> I mean, would you ever consider, Rose, maybe setting up different feeds? Like for, I mean, because. Because cause I do so many different kinds of things on my show, I do wonder sometimes if I should have, like, here are the video game episodes, here are the movie reviews, here are the author interviews. You know, could you could have, like, happy, you know, or, like, flash-forward goofy and flash-forward <laughs> uh, serious. And people at least, you know, if they're only interested in one or the other, they would at least know which ones were which. I mean, I've thought about um, I've thought about a couple of things, but I think to me, and this is just sort of my like slightly political view, is that like I do want to kind of force people to sit with certain things, even if they're like, oh, you know, because a lot of my my audience is um, like tech people, and they're it's largely male, and so. I do want to have some episodes where they have to think about, you know, like privilege and like the way that tech is implemented, like in unequally and like those kinds of things. And I don't really want them to be able to opt out of that and vice versa. Like sometimes like, you know, if I want people to just have a good time and also even in the silly episodes, we do talk about like serious things. You know, the idea is to use kind of a silly premise to kind of explain something or to explore this like thing that I've been thinking about. You know, none of them, I think, are totally just like for shits and giggles you know like i they all have a point i'm not just like you know these episodes take a lot of time to produce so i do try to like think about what i'm doing in them um but so i i i'm hesitant to um give people the opt out because in a lot of ways i do kind of want them to think about futures that they don't want to think about you know like there are a lot of people who would love to be able to shut off the part of their brain that has to think about inequality or has to think about you know the ways in which the future might n- not uh, just make everything better, you know, and I, I don't want to shove that down people's throats. But at the same time, I'm I'm not super interested in like giving people an easy out. If they decide they want to skip that episode, that's totally their prerogative. But I'm not going to like set up a whole separate feed for people who just like only want happy futures or only want, you know, quote unquote, non-political futures, which I think is silly because the future is inherently political um, and everything we do and like all the decisions we make, you know, impact people. Um, but I have thought about setting up separate feeds for like different, different kinds of things. So like, I would love, you know, I have all these interviews that I've done for these shows. And sometimes, you know, I only use two minutes of an hour long interview because it doesn't really fit the rest of the theme of the show. Um, so I've thought about doing like a separate feed that's like the future of blank. And it's just like little, you know, 15 minute, like, cut down interviews with these people who kind of only got a tiny segment on the show or something like that. But it would only be for that kind of thing where it's like a separate, it's really a separate product than it is for like themes within the same kind of flash forward world. Right. That's really interesting. Actually, at the I just took the Union Dogs podcasting class again a, a week or so ago, and some people were suggesting that maybe I should have a like short version of my show. So there's the you know, hour and 47 minute long interview with James Patrick Kelly, which I think is, I think the whole thing is great, but then maybe I could edit down like a 15 minute version or something for people who only want 15 minutes of that. I mean, I think it's like, you know, it depends on what you also want the show to be, right? Like there are people who, I mean, the read is a 90 minute show often and like, it's long, you know, and people sit through the whole thing. So I think it also like you have to kind of think about like what is the value proposition to use like a tech term here um, for your show and like what do you want it to be doing? And if you want to be doing our over an hour long interviews with people, you should do that. You should like cutting an hour and however many minutes long interview down to 15 minutes takes a lot of work to do it well. Um, and if you don't like if A, it's not like pleasurable to you and B, like you don't feel like it's really doing the thing that you want your show to be doing. I don't feel like it makes sense. Listen, haters are going to hate, and I feel like you should just do what you want because it's like life is short and podcasting doesn't make you that much money. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm actually curious, actually, have you guys had anything just go badly wrong, like any like interviews to just 
like fell through or anything like that or like you know episodes that got deleted by accident or anything like that uh, eric any any <laughs> cat- catastrophic things like that God, I, you know, yeah, but I, I, I find them so traumatic. I, I push them <laughs> out of my brain. So I think I need to think for a moment as to uh, what what I want to uh, dredge up from the archives of my head right now to, to off the top of my head. Uh, you have anything, Rose? Um, I had a moment uh, during the first season. We did an episode. We, my team and I, <laughs> um, I did an episode about um, this proposal that these philosophers came up with um, that basically said that in order to combat climate change, we should genetically engineer humans to be different. So we should give them better night vision and we should make them smaller and we should give humans an allergy to meat. Um, and this was like a real paper that was published by these philosophers. And in the episode, we sort of talked to a couple of geneticists and a couple of um, uh, ethicists about the ethics of, of these proposals. Um, turns out very unethical. Um, and basically sort of roundly debunked this idea, both for being extraordinarily difficult and also being like bordering on eugenics. Um, and sort of this idea, like we sort of dug into this idea of like, why does it seem more reasonable to literally genetically engineer humans than to just like turn the lights off more? You know, like it seems like weird that we're like reaching for this like crazy tech solution. Um, and so I did this episode and it went out and, uh, I got a text message a couple days later from a friend that said, hey, um, you were just on like they just talked about your show on the Rush Limbaugh show. <laughs> Apparently, Rush Limbaugh thought that I was literally proposing this like that. He like oh had the, he God. saw the headline and he like went on this whole rant about how like liberals are trying to genetically engineer our babies to combat climate change. Um, and it was like this whole thing. And he went on this like whole rant about it on his show. And I was like, oh, fuck, (laughs) this is really bad. Um, And it was actually really interesting because I was waiting for the like to be inundated with Rush Limbaugh listeners, right? Like to my email or to like Twitter or whatever. And I got nothing Um, like not a single person got in touch with me, which was really weird. But I did feel like weirdly bad because like, I mean, fake news is like a real problem. Uh, Like and I was like, I don't I genuinely like I don't want people thinking that this is a real thing. Um, obviously, he didn't listen to the episode. He didn't even read the like associated blog post that made it very clear that we were like not endorsing this plan. He just read the headline. Um, but yeah, that was probably the worst thing where at first I thought it was funny. And then I started really thinking through and I was like, oh, no, this is bad. Like, this is really bad. Hmm. You know, so I had something slightly, slightly similar where, um, uh, you know, the, one of the early episodes I did uh, was um, it was an episode about um Peter, it was an episode about Captain Hook, who I always thought got a raw deal in Peter Pan. And so then I just <laughs> had about halfway through the episode, it's a very straight up episode. I interview an academic, uh, and, you know, who, who studies and writes about, you know, children's literature. And then I have, um, uh, an actor playing Captain Hook drunk dial me. And <laughs> we had this whole long conversation. And at that point, it's funny. I didn't have that many listeners back then, but some people were really, really confused, uh, and thought that this was real. This was, you know, that some drunk person had called me and I believed him, which I, I, I couldn't really believe. I, it just seemed so strange to me. And then much later, like a year, at least a year later, probably more. I did an episode with Here Be Monsters. We did a collaboration, which was set in the world of H.B. Lovecraft, where uh, it was a fake new – it was basically a fake episode, which starts out realistic. In fact, we did interview, I think, a, some kind of um, 
scientist, but uh, eventually it got so ludicrous that I was interviewing H.B. Lovecraft's brain in a jar, uh, and who was making I love that anti- episode. Thank you. It was making anti-Semitic comments towards me. Um, and it was, I, we, I could not have been more clear at the beginning. This is going to start out real, but it is a radio drama. In the description on social media, in the description on your phone, it says, this is a radio drama. And I could not believe how many people wrote me and just said, I completely forgot. Like it was so believable that I forgot. And I'm really angry at you for misleading me. And somebody said, you know, I, I, I listened to podcasts to get information and I didn't get any information from this, which is funny because I feel like you actually could learn a lot about HP Lovecraft from this episode. It's just, you know, done, you know, uh, indirectly. Um, but then it was interesting because a lot of my listeners in England loved it. Like they had no problem immediately jumping on, oh, okay, this is fake, you know, because there's just so much more of a tradition of radio drama over there. Uh, but I was shocked at how divisive that, that episode was. And so I've been working with the truth, uh, lately, this radio drama podcast. Oh, and so, so my, good. yeah. <laughs> and so the first episode that I, yeah, that I, of that I did with the truth that I want to put on my podcast. I mean, I did like a whole 15 minute interview with Jonathan Mitchell, who creates the truth about the truth. I mean, I, I felt like I had to set it up so clearly as to what was going to happen. And Jonathan was like, don't you want to just jump it in and, you know, throw people for a loop? And I was like, no, 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 really, really bad <laughs> idea. Last time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've done that twice already. And, uh, and it worked. I mean, it was like, I got no, you know, it was, it couldn't have been more clear, you know, and even when I, when I went, I was even going to come back from my commercial break and just start playing it. But I was like, no, 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 I got to set it up. Okay. Everybody, here we go. Here's the episode I did. <laughs> You're not going to hear my voice yeah. in it. Uh, and then I played it and, and that went over well. But, um, it's funny. People just, you know, and Jonathan was even saying to me, he's like, well, you know, it's almost like, I mean, they're, he's like, people want consistency. You know, his podcast is all radio dramas. And he's like, but imagine if one week I instead interviewed a, you know, a, a scholar about radio dramas, people would have been really upset because it's, it's not what they're regularly expecting from, from the, the truth. Uh, and so, you know, it's funny because, I mean, you have your own podcast, you have your own sandbox, you want to play in it. Um, but yeah, and, and there are some podcasts I love where they, they throw things around all the time. Here Be Monsters, Love and Radio. Um, but, uh, but I guess in those podcasts, people are used to the, you know, uh, to being surprised because every single episode is so different than the last one. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I have to do that every the intro of flash forward every time says like, okay, we're going to start <laughs> with a radio drama. And then and I've had like longtime listeners be like, Yeah, we get it. And I'm like, No, no, you don't understand because if I don't say this, people <laughs> will and I've had this happen, people think that the expert interviews are fake too. And they've been like emailing me being like, wait, is this a real person? I'm like, yes, these are real experts. Like, These are real people. I did not hire actors to pretend to be scientists. Like this is like and use like real scientist names. Um, It was like, but yeah, so like a long time listeners have been like, OK, 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 we get it. And I just am like every time I say it, I'm like, we're going to start with a radio drama. Then we're going to talk to real experts, like which seems so silly. But like, yeah, if you don't say it, they, like people get really confused. Well, I mean, Eric, when you're talking about Here Be Monsters and the truth and stuff, are there any other kind of science fiction oriented podcasts that you listen to that you would recommend to people? You know, it's funny. I don't listen to a lot of sci-fi podcasts. I listen to podcasts purely based on how they're put together. Like, uh, like I listened to 30 for 30 because I knew Rose and a mutual friend of ours, uh, Jules, uh, is, you know, 
was working on this and, and I'm so not a sports fan, but I'm like, there's great talent on this show and I want to hear, you know, someone's near Rose's thing about the mountain climbers. And, you know, I'm completely, I'm, I'm like, how did Rose put this together? I want to know. Um, and that's just kind of, that's kind of how I listen to, to podcasts. So I'm actually fairly agnostic in a weird way about the subject matter. Um, and, and I look at shows based on how they're put together differently. I mean, I'm a huge fan of You Must Remember This. And like, cause I think what Karina Longworth does is so, is so difficult in terms of she just does a lot of research and she talks for an hour and then does like a 10 part episode of her talking for essentially 10 hours and it's mesmerizing. Um, but then, you know, I listen to, uh, like I said, I listen to love and radio a lot. Um, you know, I mean, heavyweight with Jonathan Goldstein for, it's like for different things. Like if I want to know, how do you, how do you tell a story personally? I'll listen to heavyweight. You know, how do you want, how, how do you want to tell a story from a much more sideways, you know, where you don't even have a host there? It's love and radio. Reply all. I'm so fascinated by the banter and the way they edit, um, the conversation that the two of them have based on the research that they do and the little surprises that happen within an episode. Uh, to me, ne- I, I never get tired of that. So that's kind of how I listen to stuff uh, how about rose do you listen to any science fiction podcasts yeah i'm similar to eric in that like i mean one of the curses of working in audio is that you don't have a lot of time to listen to audio um like you know in my old job i used to do science and i could you know be looking at a microscope and listen all day right um and now i'm listening all day to my own work and so i don't have a lot of time and also sometimes like i don't have a lot of emotional energy to listen to other things because in the same way i'm like listening to something and i'm thinking like oh cool they made this decision like why did they do it that way like why do you think they did this um I love there's a kids podcast called The Alien Adventures of Finn Caspian. It's like a little kids like audio drama and it's really cute. Um, it's super delightful. I like that one a lot. But I listen to The Truth. I love The Truth. And like they're often sort of sci-fi-ish. Um, yeah. I think, you know, he's kind of like veered towards. I think when they, that show started, it was sort of more traditional, like straight ahead radio drama. And I think he's veered more towards sci-fi just because it's like easier to kind of build like weird little fictional things. Well, um, actually, in, in your class, Rose, he played as a yeah. K. Dick adaptation, which was yeah. spectacular. Yeah. I mean, he's like... Honestly, like I would kill to work with him. He's so smart. Um, I actually have a pitch I want to send to him. Um, I have an idea. Oh, you for should. A... They actually, they they need. You know, they're they're looking for more writers still. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah, I have a, I have an idea. Um, for something that I think will be fun. I have it like half written. And then I was like, mm, maybe I should ask someone who actually knows what they're doing. Um, but um, I I listen to. I mean, I love. This is not around anymore. But Mystery Show um was a show from Gimlet that was alternatively like furied, infuriating and sort of just delightful like i there are some episodes that i like think is like the perfect like the belt buckle episode i think is maybe the most perfect thing i've ever heard and then there are other episodes where i'm like i hate this so much (laughs) but like it's so interesting just like the decisions that she makes and sort of how she does it and she's so smart about structure and stuff like that um i just finished listening to 36 questions the podcast musical Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to that too. It's a, yeah, it's a three-part musical, which is um, I was skeptical because I'm not like a big musicals person, but it's great. Um, I also think we must remember this is like deceptively brilliant. Um, like mm-hmm. it seems so simple, and she's so so good. Um, but in terms of sci-fi podcasts, I mean, I listen to Imaginary Worlds. Um, oh. And I, I mean, well, yeah, so David, I listen to your show. If, too, I should say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, David, I do listen to your show if there's an author that I know. Um, and so I did listen to your Kim Stanley Robinson interview from a while back. Um, actually, as prep to listen to interview him um, on my oh, show. Cool. But yeah, like if there's somebody that I'm like, oh, I like that person, I'll, I'll listen. But that's how I listen to most podcasts. 
Like I don't listen to really anything regularly, but if there's a topic that jumps out at me where I'm like, ooh, I, I like that. Like that's an interesting thing to me. I will I will grab that episode and listen to it. But yeah, I'm sort of like I sort of graze a lot and I sort of feel like I should be up on what everyone's doing. So I listen to a lot of like I listen to one episode of a lot of shows <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just to kind of get a sense of like what's out there. Um, but my like guilty pleasure is the read, which is like not at all about sci-fi. Um, but yeah, I mean, like there's just so much out there that I find, especially with my like limited listening time, it's really hard to, this is so like lame to be like, I don't actually listen to podcasts. Please listen to my <laughs> podcast. You know, <laughs> it's funny. My guilty pleasure is Rona and Beverly. Uh, oh my God. I love that show. <laughs> I saw them live. So they're, they're two so actresses. Funny. From Boston, I'm from Boston, and they play characters that are about tw- at least 20 years older than themselves, yeah. and they put on these very thick Boston accents. And what I find so fascinating is that they've created these, they have these imaginary families that they, I mean, they have real families, but because their characters <laughs> are so much older than they actually are, they have these characters that we've never seen or heard that are supposedly their kids. And they do the improv thing where one person, one of them will say something totally absurd about the other one's children, and the other one will have to justify why what they said was absolutely true, even if it's completely inconsistent with what's been established as essentially the canon of Rana and Beverly. And then they do interviews with real people in character. And like to me, that's, I mean, it is an imaginary world that they've created, and I think I, I find that show endlessly fascinating. That's so funny. Do you ever listen to Hello from the Magic Tavern? That's another one that um, yeah. that yeah. comes up, which I like a lot, which is fun. Actually, at the the podcasting class last week, people were saying, I haven't listened to it yet, but they were saying there's a new uh, This American Life uh, episode yeah, out that's about, about Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism. Yeah. Yeah, that was exciting. They don't do science fiction very much, so uh, it was cool. I mean, it, it eventually becomes it, – it, it veers further and further away from science fiction as they go yeah. through the episode, but um, – yeah. Huh. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. But yeah, it was kind of cool to see that This American Life was doing something like that. I also just wanted to mention that Tor Labs is starting up some new science fiction yeah. podcast. Um, oh, so really? Steal the Stars, right? Is that one yeah, of them? Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I've, I haven't listened to it yet, but it says it's scripted by Mac Rogers, the award-winning playwright and writer of the multi-million download The Message and Life After. Oh, my so. goodness. I believe I've advertised both of those on my podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> of their panoply, yeah, I actually yeah, did yeah. really like those a lot. Uh, yeah. So I was, it was an easy, it was an easy thing to to advertise. Oh, have you guys heard Limetown? That's the other one I was gonna say. Yeah, I like Limetown. I liked Limetown. I like, I, I like, I. It was like almost great. I was like, there were moments where I was like, mm. yeah, I dropped me out of it, you know. But I think audio drama is really hard to like sustain over a long period of time. I think um, there's not enough improv in a lot of audio drama. I mean, yeah. I feel like that's when it sounds the most fake. I think the moments, there are moments in Limetown that I felt that way, um, yeah. where I, ju- I just, and, and all, even in the message as well, I just wanted them to shake it up a little bit and not stick so closely to the script because audio is such an intimate medium and you can hear, you can hear when someone's lying, you know, in audio. Yeah. And you can certainly hear a bad or a flat read of a line that just was a little bit clunky. And then just a little bit of improv, I feel like would add so much to these shows. It's just it's such an unforgiving medium for that kind of thing because like you can't cover it with pictures, you can't cover it with action or like music. You know, you just like if you if it's not quite right, it just drops you out of it so quickly. Yeah, and that's what working with Jonathan is like on the truth is just you know uh, he records like five times as much audio yeah. as he needs per episode, and even still, if he can if he never gets a good reading of a line as important as it may have been to the script, he's like I he will not include it. Wow. That's why he's so good. 
<laughs> I thought it was interesting, Eric, that you actually learned or you started playing Dungeons and Dragons for your podcast. Are you going to do any more kind of embedded journalism kind of stuff like that? Oh, do you have any? Well, I, first of all, I'm still playing with that same D&D group uh, almost two years later. But uh, do you have any suggestions of where I should embed myself? Uh, hmm, I'll have to think about that. Actually, that, that's interesting, though, that you're that you're still playing with that group. Yeah, so my character is a sorcerer, and he's a halfling. <laughs> I yeah, I I just um, it was it was just a lot of people um, you know, suggested to me that like you should cover D and D. It's it's really you know, and 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 I I you know I had noticed a lot of articles where you know look this famous author you know started out playing D and D. This famous playwright you know says D and D was this great creative gym uh, the for their you know mind um, as a kid. Or as a teenager, so I thought it'd be fun. Uh, I thought there were these great sound possibilities of me learning how to play and rolling dice and all that. And like the last day that I was there, and I did, I thought it was the last day I'd ever play D anD. d There was this woman, this young woman who in her twenties at the time, um, but she was an amazing dungeon master. And you know, they talk about the theater of the mind uh, when you're playing D anD. d And she was just so. And I still, I mean, we just played with her last Friday and I was just, I, we hadn't played in a while and I just came home and I was saying to my wife, I forgot how good she is. I mean, she's like a one woman theatrical company. And, um, I just was, and we, we had great chemistry with me and like three other guys who were there. And I was telling her, I was like, that was exactly what I was looking for. And so she's like, well, you know, I have private groups. So you guys want to form a private group? Um, so yeah, our fellowship has been going on for about, uh, two years now and it's been i mean I, i've been considering doing a follow-up episode because what's happened in that world with our characters is truly epic oh that would be cool it's funny i don't know if you've seen how many podcasts there are where it's just people recording their dungeons and dragon sessions and they are incredibly popular like i cannot yeah. even believe how popular they are yeah adventure zone is is like so popular right is that's the the mcelroy's yeah 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 what's there's one too where they they it's it's uh they film it, but they have animation as well. I can't remember the name of that one. Was. It's on YouTube. Mm. Oh, I don't know that. Yeah. I was actually thinking of, because um, you said that you learned to play D&D at the Brooklyn Strategist, um, where I've been there a couple of times. And oh, yeah. I have thought about maybe doing an episode where I interviewed some people who own those kind of gaming stores, because I'm really fascinated about what it takes to keep a store like that in business. It seems like one of those dream jobs, like having your own uh, bookstore or movie store or comic book store or something. That place is thriving too. I mean, it's, uh, and in fact, uh, one of the guys I interviewed there, Tim, I think went off to another, uh, com- competing <laughs> gaming shop. It's, it's incredible how popular they are and it's intergenerational too. Um, I mean, they'll, they have, you know, I mean, there's kids and teenagers, but there's a lot of adults that are, that are there. I'm definitely not the oldest person in the room, although I'm close to it. Yeah, there's a store like that. I live in Astoria. There's a store like that here called The Geekery. I'll just put in a good word for it. I've gone to some events there and really had a good time. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Eric, if you, I just had a really interesting conversation with a guy who designs board games. Um, and like just generally like how, like, I guess I never really thought about like the, all the work that goes into designing board games. Mm. Um, and he had like some really interesting stuff to say about just like, yeah, like how you basically have to build this like 2D and I guess 3D with the pieces and stuff world that people live in and then play in and, uh, like what makes a good board game? Because like, you know, some games are too complicated and some are like too simple because they're boring. And like, how do you strike that good balance? I just thought it was really interesting his, the way he like talked about something that I guess like, of course, people have to design board games, but it had not really occurred to me like that that hmm. was a job. Um, but yeah, I feel like board games are fascinating to me. And, yeah. And I guess D&D is not quite a board game, but. 
Yeah, no, I, I feel like there's 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 a lot to go into there. I mean, there's there's so much more to explore that I even even the two years I've been doing it, I feel like uh, I feel like I got to the game shop and I was so daunted by how many games I did not know existed <laughs> yeah. that people were really into, and yet I've 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 yet to. Um, to really delve into it. Um, it's funny, though. Frankly, I'm way more fascinated by all the um, Hasidic Jews that go there on dates. Uh, that's yeah. like that's who I really want to talk to. Is It's really weird. It's a big thing for a lot of like yeah. in Hasidic Jewish courtship in Brooklyn is to go yeah. to game shops. Yeah, I, that I sounds like that a story. fascinating episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, when that Rose sounds like a This talk- American Life story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When Rose was actually mentioning the board boards and stuff there was this documentary i think it was called the dwarfanauts but it's about this guy and he lives in new york city and he makes kind of like um dungeon blocks like kind of lego type dungeon blocks that you can build um dungeons for your D campaigns and oh. he's this he's a really interesting cool. character so i would recommend checking it's that funny, out as you well. know it's our Etsy store for everything yeah, it's funny. Our um our D and D group is for um our our dungeon master for her thirtieth birthday. She wanted to do one of those uh, escape the room thing. It was a D and D themed escape the room, oh. and it was it was amazing how useless I felt without any of my magic powers. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, normally I just shrink myself down and go under the door. <laughs> so so you didn't have any abilities. You just it was just like a medieval style dungeon you were trying to escape from or something yeah you know those escape the room things yeah 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 it was a dun- d it was like a D type themed escape the room uh-huh uh except for the part where we got no to magic. Use any, any magic which was like yeah. okay was that in new york <laughs> yeah in hey, brooklyn oh cool everything's in brooklyn out. you can find everything's anything in brooklyn, in brooklyn. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, cool. So, guys, we're pretty much out of time. So, um, I don't know. Does anyone have any final thoughts? Any uh, any upcoming plans for your podcast or anything cool to mention? I want to ask you guys a question, if you don't mind. Um, I have a task that has been given to me by um, someone to watch a bunch of sci-fi TV shows that I haven't had a chance to watch. Um, what is the best sci-fi-related TV show? Broadly, interpreting sci-fi broadly. So, um, wh- what should I be watching? Hmm. I, I like the expanse. Okay. Yeah, it's it, the expanse is good. That's been that was my summer my summer discovery. Um, I mean, I loved Fringe. I feel like that. I don't know if you watched Fringe during its time, but it it it's so hard for a show to actually come to completion and and be good from beginning to end. And that and it just kept developing in interesting ways. Cool. Have you seen Black Mirror? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Orphan Black. That's the other one that's on my list too. I feel like I've heard so much about how impressive it is that I think it's Tatiana Maslany who like plays every character. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. Um, Tatiana Maslany. Yeah, she's Maslany, amazing. Yeah. The show is it's excellent, and it gets like a lot of these shows around the third season or so. It gets kind of wonky, and then they mm-hmm. just decide, had to decide, okay, when are we going to end this? What is the end, <laughs> what is the end game of this of this entire series? Uh, and and even she, I think, was like, I'm getting a little tired of playing 12 characters in episodes. So, um, <laughs> Sounds exhausting. One, yeah, once they made that decision, the show got infinitely better. And and the fourth and fifth season, it just could just completed a few months ago. The entire series is excellent. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's on my list. I just uh, I just got caught up on Rick and Morty, which I'm enjoying. Oh yeah, that's a great. Yeah, one. yeah. I saw actually. I forgot to mention actually, Rose. You did a Handmaid's Tale podcast, right? I did do a Handmaid's Tale podcast. Yes, yeah. I did like one of those sort of TV recap podcasts for a Handmaid's Tale, which was. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it. Um, it is uh very good, but like tough to watch sometimes. Cause it's really yeah. depressing. 
Yeah, that's why I didn't want. It just looked. I mean, I already watched Man in the High Castle, which is great. But yeah. It's really, I'm like, it seems. I'm like, there's only one. Um, I want to shoot myself after every episode of these I can take. Yeah, it's funny because I feel like they got Handmaid's Tale got so much press for being so like you know relevant and da da da. Even though when they started producing, obviously, like they didn't think it was going to be this relevant. And I actually, I think a lot of people assumed that was going to help them. And I actually think it kind of hurt them because I've talked to so many people who are friends of mine who like love Margaret Atwood, read the book, like would would be the target audience for this, and they were just like. I just like can't watch this. Like I just, like the the day to day is so awful right now that like I can't like I just don't want to watch this. I think Man in the High Castle may may suffer from the same problem actually. Although now I'm hooked on it, so but I, I wonder if <laughs> I hadn't started watching it if I'd want to watch it right now. Yeah. Do you think you'll do any more TV review podcasts like that? It was it was really interesting. I um it was the first thing I've ever done like that where you just like show up and talk and then basically your conversation is put out into the podcast. I mean, I've done interviews like this before, but you know, when you're the guest, it's a little bit different than when you're kind of the host or the person who's sort of talking sort of for the the show. Um, And I had a co-host for the show, um, but um, Laura June Topolsky, who um, was really, really smart and we had very different perspectives on the show, but it was very interesting. Um, you you know, when you don't really get to edit stuff or you aren't writing a script, it's not a scripted thing. Um, you know, if you make a mistake, people will tell you, um, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. And I just feel like it was it was really I'm like a, I'm someone who prepares a lot. Um, I'm like a over reporter. I like read all the books. I make all the prep docs like I'm very prepared. And so I prepped a ton for every episode because I would like watch it and then I would do, I'd be like, okay, well, I want to talk about like this element and I would come with this like five page Google doc and Laura would just show up and just like talk. And which is great. I'm not saying that like that was the best. I think there were just different methods, but it was really stressful for me because I was like, oh, well, like I'm just talking and then whatever I say is going to go out to the world, you know, um, and about this show. And so I was actually super nervous about it. And it took me a couple of episodes, I think, to really get into a groove um, because I was so worried about saying the wrong thing or getting something wrong. Or, you know, if I had an idea, I would just I didn't want to just say it. I would want to, like, think, think about it and then, like, maybe Google and see if anyone else has written about it, you know, Um and you can't obviously do that. Um, but um, I will say that, you know, we got a message from the um, the sort of showrunner for the show. Um, and he was like, hey, I, I like your podcast. And I was like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and then I was like, you know, hey, would you be willing to be on? And so he came on to the show the, at the end of the season. He came on and we did an interview with him. And he told us that he had listened to every single episode, um, wow. which was terrifying. But also he liked it. So hopefully I don't think we sounded that stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but he was I mean, I think it's for him like it's nice to have people who are really attentive watchers. You know, be, like I watched every episode more than once to like make sure I got everything um, and to sort of notice things and talk about things um and it was really interesting to hear him talk about the way that he thought about the show you know being like a straight white man like being the showrunner for this show that's sort of about all these other things um and his decision making process um but yeah it was interesting but it's so different from what i do at flash forward it actually took me a couple of episodes to really feel comfortable doing it Hmm, that's interesting and then of course we've got star trek discovery coming up pretty soon yes yes I'm excited. Yeah, about I'm that. really, I'm very curious about that. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's funny because it, the, I think the trailers look great, but then all the like word of mouth behind the scenes is pretty rough in terms of yeah. like creative differences and everything. So I'm very curious. But that was the case out. for Westworld too, right? Like people like they yeah. had to stop production and blah blah blah. And like, I mean, I had its flaws, but like, I thought it was a great show. Yeah. 
All right, cool. So, guys, we are all out of time. So, I think we're going cool. to get to Sorry, I, I there. diverted us to TV. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's good. good. It's, it's good. good. I just want to say that I, 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 uh, I said that Rosa's thing on 30 for 30 was about mountain climbers, and I realized, no, they actually were going to the Arctic. So, sorry about uh, it's close that. Enough. I sound too inaccurate there. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Don't worry. <laughs> Thanks for listening to it. That's all I care about. <laughs> it was cold. I remember it was very cold. <laughs> <laughs> it was very cold. It was very cold. <laughs> That's yes. the hazards of this kind of show. Just whatever you say, mountain climbers, it's going out to the world. <laughs> that's what, yeah, that's what terrifies me about doing these kinds of things. I make mistakes like that all the time. Yeah. Everybody does. Everybody does. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone makes mistakes. Our audience will forgive you. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Don't at me. Whatever you do, I don't care. <laughs> Uh, all right, great. So uh, we've been speaking with Rose Eppelith, host of Flash Forward, and Eric Malinsky, host of Imaginary Worlds. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Rose Eveleth and to Eric Malinsky for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Chadney Everett, Timothy Jones, and Adam Smith, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.